Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide. And it's not always polite. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, but my family moved around the United States from the time I was two until I was eight. We moved back to Detroit when I was in third grade. We settled into a house in a working class neighborhood on Detroit's far east side, blocks from the wealthy suburb of Gross Point. I attended St. Matthew, a local Catholic elementary school not far from where we lived. I later went to Dominican, a nearby all-girls Catholic school, for middle school and stayed at Dominican for high school. As a kid, my dad, always overprotective, didn't let me walk or bike far. When I was little, I could only go a few houses down in either direction, never past the block. I would play with a few of the kids in the neighborhood whose parents my parents knew. Most of our neighbors were working to middle class like we were. Then, as I got older, one by one, the families I knew from the neighborhood and from my school moved away. Warren, Sterling Heights, Harper Woods, St. Clair Shores, Roseville, New Baltimore, East China, and new people moved in. Then the housing values went down, and instead of homeowners, our neighbors were renters. And the absentee landlords who had properties that depreciated in value didn't care who they rented to. Our neighbors were no longer working the middle class like ourselves. The next door neighbors partied all day. One of them even caused a power outage by shooting the nearby transformer. The family dog died suddenly while out in our backyard, and my parents believed he was poisoned by the neighbor, though they had no proof. By the time I was in high school, there was a drug dealer living across the street. My parents, like good neighbors and citizens, called the police, but instead of going after the drug dealer, the police targeted them for harassment. The police even stopped me around the corner from my home for a minor infraction they never stopped anyone for on the way with my mom to get my driver's license. So eventually, my parents stopped calling. They had tried to be those good neighbors that would improve the place they lived, but the police seemed to want to protect the criminals more than the law-abiding residents. With the housing values in the tank, my parents couldn't really afford to move. My mom was finally able to move out after my dad died. When I visit Detroit to see family, I've driven through the old neighborhood. The 2008 housing crisis hit Detroit very hard, and my old neighborhood was no exception. The last I checked, the house I grew up in is boarded up, the one next to it long bulldozed. Most of the houses on my block are either abandoned or gone. Few people live on my old block. One of my dreams is to have enough money to buy the house I grew up in, which would probably be the easy part given the property values, and restore it, which I'm sure would be where the real money sink would be. But I would love to see my old house, my old neighborhood, and the city of my birth rise once again. Happy Resurrection Sunday. I am your host, Jay Poole. Donald Trump is continuing to be investigated by special counsel Robert Mueller. The Republican Party has implored Trump not to fire him, but they don't want to put their money where their mouths are. They are not willing to act as a co-equal branch of American government and add legal barriers to Trump firing him, nor are they, at this point, willing to impeach him. We have a president who thrives off racism and xenophobia, 
who is willing to use the men and women who serve our country in order to build his vanity project, the wall, under the guise of protecting real Americans from rapist Mexicans and illegal criminals. Speaking of criminals, he has pardoned a convicted criminal, Joe Arpaio, who is now emboldened to run for Senate in Arizona. Meanwhile, an American father of two children, Stefan Clark, is murdered by the police state in cold blood for holding a cell phone in his own backyard. To Trump's administration, they had no comment because it's a local matter, though this has never stopped him from speaking and intervening on other local matters, such as the case of Kate Steinle. Likely, like many other victims of the police state, Clark's killers will probably never be held to account. Families of murder victims are often praised for going to any lengths, legal or illegal, to seek justice for their loved ones. Yet some judge his brother, Stevante Clark, for his protest at a Sacramento City Council meeting, criticizing his outbursts, his methods. Oh, there's a more productive way of doing this. When there is no real avenue for justice, all productive ways are null and void. Wikipedia defines a failed state as a political entity that has disintegrated to a point where basic conditions and responsibilities of a sovereign government no longer function properly. I like this definition, but if we want to use a more authoritative source, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a failed state is a country whose political or economic system has become so weak that the government is no longer in control. We praise Egypt, Syria, and the people in other Middle Eastern countries for the Arab Spring. We praise the people of Iran for protesting their theocracy, but criticize Devante Clark, dismiss March for Our Lives, vilify college protests, and slander Black Lives Matter. We praise democracy elsewhere, but within our borders contribute to its demise. Because as long as it's the other bearing the brunt of oppression in our own country, we have nothing to worry about. But victims like Daniel Shaver say otherwise. This is what happens in a failed state. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and have lived here for about 15 years. It amazes me how many Cincinnatians lament about a declining city. It's not like the good old days, and that they don't want their city to become like Detroit. Now, Detroit, after years of declining population, bankruptcy, and receivership, is coming back economically, and fewer suburbanites are screaming that they are in fear of going into downtown. Now, having experienced living in both Detroit and Cincinnati, I always like to say that Cincinnati is Detroit with hills. The fact is that Cincinnati is already Detroit, a decade or two delayed. Now, there are a number of narratives that explain the decline of Detroit. The most popular among national Republicans and the alt-right is that because Democrats have run Detroit for the past several decades, of course it would be in disrepair. Senator Ted Cruz once said as such during one of the 2016 presidential debates, the one held in Detroit, no less, and added that it was the lack of education that led to Detroit's decline. Spoken like a true outsider, a dog whistle. The most popular narrative among suburban Detroiters, many of whom are descended from families who left the city long ago, is that late longtime mayor Coleman A. Young ran out the tax base and caused a war with Detroit's surrounding suburbs, 
a war which Young and Detroit clearly lost. The chief propagator of this one is longtime Oakland County executive and all-around terrible human L. Brooks Patterson, a bitter Republican who once said he was going to turn Detroit into an Indian reservation and holds a grudge even today against both the city and Young, who has been dead for over 20 years. If you know anything about Detroit's history, which I'll get into later, you'll know that Patterson's narrative is a dog whistle too. But as a native of the city of Detroit who has family roots in the city, my story is that it was something else. And as you know, I don't dog whistle or insinuate without saying what I really think. I will not pull punches. The cause of Detroit's decline is the same thing threatening places like Cincinnati and America as a whole. Potstirer Podcast will be back after this. Hi, I'm Jay, and I want to tell you about my new podcast, This Zennial Life. It's a weekly short burst of stories, insights, health and wellness tips, and more from a Zennial who is still a work in progress. Go to thiszennialife.wordpress.com for details. Listen to This Zennial Life today. Happy Easter! Potster Podcast is celebrating the one-year mark. Can you believe it's been one year? One year of sharing research, thoughts, beliefs, and more about American politics, religion, and history. Potster Podcast started out as a way for a person dealing with major life changes to have an outlet and distraction. And just in that year, it's turned into so much more than that. Doing Potstirer Podcasts has allowed me to use my talents and step into my purpose. It has allowed me the opportunity to learn from others' worldviews and experiences, and I've met so many great people along the way. The community of content creators is awesome, and I've grown so much from being a part of it. Thank you for accepting me into the fold. Special thanks to Chris from The Podcasting Couch and Michaela and John from The Political Otters for having me on your podcasts over this first year. Special thanks to Allison K. Garcia, author of Vivir El Dream, for coming on as a guest on the podcast. Special thanks to my friends and family who have been a constant source of encouragement. And the fact that many of you are out here telling other people about my podcast has not gone unnoticed. Also, special thanks to the love of my life, John, a.k.a. Chuckles, for being super supportive. Whether it's being a soundboard to bounce ideas off of, or doing the Riverside Chats episodes with me, or bringing me keto-approved fuel during recording weekend, or encouraging me when I need it. Last, but most definitely not least, special thanks to you, my listeners. Time is so precious, and I appreciate that you take time out of your lives to listen to what I have to say. I appreciate the reviews, the encouragement, the comments and feedback. You listening and getting something out of the episodes is what makes this meaningful. Here's to one year of Potstirer Podcast and more to come. Thank you for joining me. Now, back to Potstirer Podcast. A city, a county, a state, A country cannot run properly without two things, investment and accountability. If you don't have these two things, you fail. Now let's first talk about investment. 
Once upon a time, Detroit was a bustling city that was synonymous with the auto industry. The genesis of the auto industry as we know it is in Detroit, the Motor City, Motown. In episode one, I mentioned that when I was growing up, most of the fathers of the kids I grew up with had jobs related to the auto industry. Most worked directly with one of the big three, Ford, GM, and Chrysler. Others, like my dad, worked for companies that contracted with the automakers. I grew up in the 80s and 90s when Detroit was already on the decline economically. But if we go back to 1950, Detroit peaked at 1.86 million in population. For reference, in the most recent census, in 2010, Detroit's population was a little over 700,000 residents. So in the 1950s, the tax base for Detroit was a lot bigger, and many Detroiters worked for the automakers and related industries and were able to make a great living. The 1950s are usually held up by a lot of people as the good old days. Middle-class households were generally able to thrive on one income. There were fewer divorces, more two-parent households, stable families, a very conservative and traditional time. It was after World War II. It was a time of prosperity for the U.S., so many people pined for this time. But many who championed the idea of a more traditional time period have short memories and selective grasps of history. This traditional time period, the 1950s, was so great thanks to collective bargaining. In other words, unions. For all their flaws, unions allowed laborers to enjoy a greater share of the profits that big industry enjoyed. And when Americans have disposable income, they're better able to support businesses. Hudson's in downtown Detroit, Shilato's in downtown Cincinnati. Older residents in many cities around the country reminisce about big department stores that were cornerstones of their formerly bustling downtowns. Those downtowns thrived in their heyday due to more Americans making a living wage, which was again thanks to unions. In the 1950s, the federal tax rate for the highest income bracket was as high as 92% in 1952 and 1953. In the 1950s as a whole, the tax rate was usually 20% for the lowest income bracket, up to 91% for the highest income bracket. To compare that to today, in 2018, the lowest income bracket has a 10% tax rate, while the highest income bracket is under a tax rate of 37%. That's a huge difference. And with that kind of money flowing into the government coffers in the 1950s, Americans experienced an overall boom in birth rates, and also in what the government was willing and able to do to support this growth. After World War II, the federal government enacted the GI Bill, which helped support veterans in a way that had not been done previously, through the establishment of VA hospitals, assistance with college tuition, and low-interest mortgages to enable home ownership. In 1956, the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act was enacted, which was the act that led to the creation of America's interstate highway system many of us rely on and often take for granted even today. The building of the U.S. interstate system beginning in the 1950s made cars increasingly useful for more American families who had the disposable income at that point to buy them. Also, because of their living wages, plus the leg up received from the GI Bill, 
more Americans had space to store them in these newly created suburbs, which were also a product of the interstate system. It was all interrelated, but it starts with investment. Building a strong and growing country doesn't happen in a vacuum. It takes money to make money. Investment and accountability are key to a thriving location from the local level to the national level and a healthy democracy. When the U.S. Constitution was written in 1787, it was after the Revolutionary War and the U.S. had successfully broken away from Great Britain. The founders imagined for this new country a national government of three branches, the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. The legislature creates law, the executive enacts or enforces law, the judiciary interprets law. Besides each branch having their own role, each are intended to be a check on the other branches so that no one branch would be too powerful. In other words, the founders intended the government of this new country to have built in a degree of accountability. Even at the highest level of government, every branch of government understood that they had others to answer to. The executive or the presidency, the legislature or Congress, and the judiciary or the courts. And to top it all off, when the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution, the First Amendment enshrined the freedom of the press, which is essentially an outside check on government. The Bill of Rights as a whole placed constraints on national government in relation to the people, but with the 14th Amendment also placed these same constraints on state government as well. Accountability matters. Of course, partisanship, which was not written into the Constitution, has made accountability very challenging over the years. Even from the very beginning, anti-federalists versus federalists, the Democratic-Republicans, now the Democrats, versus the Whigs, then prior to the Civil War, the Democrats versus the Republicans. The lead-up to the Civil War and the Civil War itself were challenges to government accountability. It is difficult to hold your own tribe to account, especially at the cost of power. So let's fast forward to the 1970s. In 1972, burglars broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, which was in the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. The purpose was for President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign to photograph documents and tap phone lines at the headquarters in order to provide the campaign with an advantage. Three weeks later, a second break-in to fix a malfunctioning wiretap led to the arrest of five of the burglars. The FBI investigated the burglary, as did the media. Most famously, Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein did a great deal of investigative reporting. These investigations eventually led to the doorstep of Richard Nixon, who by this time had been reelected to a second term. It was later found out that Nixon had initiated a cover-up of his campaign's involvement, attempting to distance himself from the architects of the break-in. How did Nixon and his administration react to being implicated in the Watergate break-in? The administration attacked the Post in their coverage of the scandal. Supporters called the stories wild accusations and accused the media of having a liberal bias against the administration. When it was later determined that tapes existed that pointed to his involvement, Nixon attempted to invoke executive privilege to keep from having to release the tapes. 
he wanted to evade accountability. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously that executive privilege did not apply here and he was required to release the tapes. Congress, including members of Nixon's own Republican Party, were moving towards impeachment. And faced with the other branches of government holding him to account and impending impeachment and removal, Nixon chose to resign instead. Accountability matters in a functional democracy just as much as investment. Because if you don't hold government to account, it is prone to corruption. And when people cannot trust government to do the right thing, they will take matters into their own hands. If investment and accountability are so important and produce positive outcomes, or at least mitigate negative ones, then why are both investment and accountability on the decline in America? And can this be fixed? We'll talk about the fatal flaw in the system in part two, next time on Potstirer Podcast. Check out our website today, potstirerpodcast.com, for previous episodes, special presentations, announcements, merch, and all things Potstirer Podcast. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcatchers. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review, share, and tell your friends. Thank you for listening and supporting Potstar Podcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.